Welcome to the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. We're going to explore ways to sharpen our diagnostic skills, find learning resources, and hear from experts in the automotive field. Hey, what's going on, automotive world? Welcome to another episode of the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. My name is Sean Tipping, and you are stuck with just me today. It is cold outside. Uh, I live up here in South Canada, and it has been regularly below zero recently. We're having a little bit of a cold snap. Of course, what else do you expect in the middle of January? We're pretty used to it around here. We know cold, and that's just the way things are. Of course, elsewhere in the country, uh, I know it's been cold recently as well. Uh, I've been talking to some of the guys that are further down south in the States, and they're dealing with single-digit temps as well. And uh, so everybody's kind of feeling it at the moment, or at least most places. So that's kind of uh, the vibe that I wanted to go with today, is because while the cold sucks... It affects our industry quite a bit as far as the vehicles go. Uh, Things break in the cold. And I've always noticed in this industry when I was a technician, about the time where Christmas, New Year's get over with, so the end of December, beginning of January, the business will drop off in the auto repair industry, typically speaking. You know, everybody's kind of done spending money. They get that credit card bill after Christmas. You don't go out and do quite as much after the holidays. And that's just normal for most people. And so you see the business drop off in January and February, unless we see temperatures that are regularly below zero. I mean, we'll hit negative 30 or 40 when it really gets cold around here. And if that's the case, it doesn't matter what time of year it is. Well, of course, it's going to happen during January, February, but it doesn't matter if it's after the holidays, you're going to be busy with broken cars. That's just how it's going to be. And I've always noticed the colder it is, the busier we are and the more things break. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Uh, Some of my experiences with dealing with cars in the cold and things that can happen to vehicles uh, when they're out in the cold and how they stop working. And, you know, obviously working in the cold is the worst as well. And I've done this before. You know, sometimes you got to be outside with the vehicle for a number of different scenarios. You know, maybe something is not starting and so you're not able to drive it into to the shop. Now, of course, you might say, well, we'll just push this thing in. Well, maybe it's your own vehicle. Maybe it's in your driveway and you got to deal with it out in the cold. And that's and that's the absolute worst working out in the cold because i mean obviously it's really cold but (laughs) your tools are cold uh you can't feel anything with your fingers and everything breaks as far as like plastic components i mean you don't want to touch (laughs) plastic components on a vehicle when it's below zero because it becomes very brittle and you can snap and break stuff that you normally wouldn't otherwise so you know i always try to get the vehicle into a warm shop whenever possible And, you know, I was at a shop the other day, uh, recently doing some mobile work and this kind of blew me away. 
you know, it's 15 below outside and this shop didn't even have heat going in this place. Oh, here, here's what they did have. They had a little propane tanks with sunflower heaters on them. If you've never seen those or, you know, it's just a little device that screws onto the top of the propane tank and kind of shoots out it either glows red hot or has some flames coming off of it. And they had like four of those in this little two bay shop. And I'm like, what are you doing, man? I'm talking to the owner. Like, I mean, number one safety hazard for a couple of reasons, you could easily start a fire. I mean, if somebody's dropping a fuel tank, you got one of these sitting next to you. Um, that's a huge hazard, but also, um, there's a little bit of carbon monoxide going into this place. Plus it wasn't even that warm in there. I mean, it must've been about 40 degrees in this shop. So I was taken back by the fact that the techs were actually working in this scenario. And I was, I was giving the owner some crap. I'm like, what, what the heck, man? And this guy, I don't know, pretty, pretty shady setup. I think I'm actually not going to be answering those phone calls anymore, but anyways, we want to get the vehicle in somewhere warm where we can work on it. It's going to make life a lot easier, but here's the problem with that. Sometimes you get the vehicle inside and the problem that was happening out in the cold will no longer present itself. So there are some cases, I'm going to talk to you about two of them here today, where the only time that we could get the vehicle to act up is when it was cold. So you pretty much had to work on it outside. Um, and uh, that's just the way it is. We want to prove out this fault. We want to do the testing. We're going to have to go outside and get cold. Um, but before I get to that, uh, I want to talk a little bit about some of the routine things that I've learned over the years about the cold and vehicles. And you might be familiar with some of these. You might not if you live in a state where you don't deal with cold weather on a regular basis. So this may be new information to you. Um, either way, what we end up finding a lot of time, the most common issue that cold weather is going to affect for an engine and a vehicle, of course, is that they become flooded. Um, meaning that the insides of the cylinders and the spark plug, spark plug electrode is going to be fouled out by fuel. Right? You pull that spark plug out and it's dripping wet with gas. And you know, for when there's other issues with the vehicle, this can happen in regular temperatures as well, but happens a lot when it's cold. And there's a number of reasons that can cause this. The, the engine has so much working against it when it's trying to start and it's 30 below zero. Um, the battery being one of those things. And of course you see a lot of dead batteries too. Um, this time of year, the battery has going to have a challenge turning over this engine and your starter does need to be in good working order, right? A starter that's weak, failing, that drops the cranking speed. I mean, your cranking speed is already slower in a condition like this, but then you add in a battery problem or starter problem, and that's going to slow that starter speed, that cranking speed down even more. And that's going to inhibit the, the engine's ability to start. You want as much cranking speed as possible when it's cold out. That's why make sure we have a charged battery in there, put a jump pack on there. So this thing spins fast enough to get itself going. That's, that's one issue that the engines face and some of the problems that we see in the, these temperatures, but also on the fuel side. And this is where the flooding comes from. Now, number one, the, the fuel is going to be cold. The air coming in is going to be cold. And if the vehicle has been sitting outside, all the metal inside of the engine is also going to be cold. And why is that a problem? I mean, why do we need um, extra fuel 
even if the engine does start, we're going to run it rich. We're going to add a bunch of fuel to this cold engine to get it to go. What's the reason behind that? You may be very familiar with this, but it's because we need as much vaporized fuel as possible. And when it's really, really cold out, it is more difficult for the fuel to vaporize, right? Because liquid fuel won't burn. If you have liquid fuel, it has to turn into a vapor. It has to turn into a gaseous state before it will actually burn or combust in the cylinder, right? And that's the whole idea with compression is, well, I should start with fuel injection. We're going to pressurize the fuel behind a fuel injector, right? We're going to open that injector and the injector is designed to take that, you know, liquid fuel and spray it into a mist to atomize the fuel. And that's going to set it up for proper vaporization, right? If we have tiny, tiny fuel molecules that are still liquid, but it's been atomized, then we put it in the combustion chamber, surround it with air, compress the cylinder, raise the temperature of that air, that's going to help vaporize that fuel, and it's going to allow for proper combustion, right? But again, we're dealing with cold air, cold fuel, and cold engine components, so the metal inside the engine. So it's going to be more difficult to get a vapor out of that liquid fuel in these temperatures. And even if we do, even if we do vaporize this fuel, the cold engine components can cause it to condense back to a liquid, right? So during this cold startup, we're going to be pumping through a lot of unburnt fuel. And so we add more fuel to this process to make up for that, to get enough vaporization in order to start the engine. But all that's very difficult. Um, One of the things that we want to make sure that we have is proper fuel pressure here. That's going to allow for that atomization, which turns into vaporization. And I always tell the students when we're pulling in school cars that all they do is sit outside in the cold. Before you actually crank this thing, Make sure that there's a jump pack on it so the battery is fully charged, but also make sure you cycle the key a couple times so that the fuel pump primes the system and you have adequate pressure. If you just grab the key and turn it, that school car has been sitting for a week outside, has no pressure in the lines, and you're going to actually have to wait for that pressure to build up. And if you start cranking at the same time, you might spray a little bit of fuel in there without the proper pressure behind it, and it ends up in a flooded situation, right? And so we see this a lot, and usually a flooded vehicle is going to get the Minnesota tune-up. Let's take a look at the plugs. We're probably going to replace the plugs. We're definitely going to change the oil at this point because uh, that excess gas makes it pass the rings into the oil. And we're going to check out the condition of the starter and the battery. Maybe it gets a battery. Um, I used to work on uh, post office vehicles. Uh, the shop that I worked at in the mid 2000s, we actually serviced six or seven nearby towns of uh, postal trucks. And I'm actually going to talk a little bit about the postal trucks, because I think it's pretty interesting. But one of the things that we found we were doing on a regular basis was a battery, a set of plugs, and an oil change on these things when it was well below zero. Now, these trucks were especially vulnerable to the cold weather. And I actually kind of wanted to talk a little bit about this and why that is. And if you're not familiar with the post office vehicles, if you haven't really, I'm sure you've seen one deliver mail to your house, but maybe you're not familiar with what exactly is a post office vehicle. And you may not be familiar with how long these things have been around. It's, it's very interesting. Uh, so I'm going to go off on a little tangent here. So stay with me. Uh, we're going to talk about post office vehicles for just a little bit and I'll reference it back to 
the cold weather problems that we see. So the post office since 1986, that was the year I was born, to this day in 2022, although they do have a new contract and I'll talk about that, has been using what is called an LLV to deliver mail. That's those white square trucks. They're named LLVs. And what these vehicles were, it was a joint effort by GM and a company called Grummer. And so they designed these specifically for mail delivery, right? They have a thousand cubic feet of storage in the back. The, um, the back door rolls up like a garage door. They're right-hand drive. So the person driving can reach the mailbox, you know, depending, given the side of the street that they're on. And they're actually, the frame, the chassis, and the engine, it's based off of a General Motors S10 or an S10 Blazer. And here's the engine. It's a 2.5 liter four cylinder, and these are rear wheel drive. Okay. And so if you worked on vehicles in the eighties and nineties, I'm sure you saw a couple S10s or Blazers that had the 2.5 liter Iron Duke engine, right? They called it the Iron Duke because it was a cast iron block and a cast iron head. And this thing was completely gutless. Um, they actually had this in the Fiero too. Now that I think about it in a couple front wheel drive vehicles, but they placed this in a conventional mounting in this S10 frame and they made a rear wheel drive. So it's not even four wheel drive for these little mail trucks that are out delivering mail here in Minnesota, out in the sticks when it's snowing like crazy and there's dirt roads. And it's amazing that they get around it all. Um, they actually did get quite stuck quite a bit um, while we were doing the post office services. So we go out and pull them out. But anyways, these engines are so underpowered. I think they were like 98 horsepower, <laughs> you know, in block cam, four cylinder, um, completely gutless, terrible, terrible fuel mileage. They get nine or 10 miles per gallon with these things and, and, and still do to this day. And that's where I'm going with this. They were throttle body injected engines. So you had one fuel injector up sitting above the throttle body that would spray fuel into this thing. Well, that gave the fuel all kinds of chances to condense on that cold intake manifold before it got to the cylinders. So as you can imagine, these things were incredibly difficult to start when it was really cold out. And of course we ran into that quite a bit. Um, you know, just really, really sad little vehicles. Um, no AC. So in the summertime, there's no air conditioning. Uh, there's no airbags. There's no ABS. And you can argue whether you need that stuff or not. But these vehicles were, it was, you know, it was a billion dollar contract that the post office made with GM and Grummer back in the eighties to make these long life vehicles. And they were supposed to only be in service for 20 years, but that's the long life part. They were actually like, they ran them through a gambit of tests when they initially created these to make sure that these would handle daily service for 20 years. And then they were going to, at that point, re-up the contract and go from there. And it was supposed to happen in 2009. They were supposed to get a new contract. Well, there was delays and delays and delays, and they actually just signed a new contract this past year in March with a company called Oshkosh, which is in Wisconsin. And you can Google the vehicle. You actually should go check out the new one. It is, if you thought the old trucks were ugly, this thing is even worse. Um, but back to these uh, little LLVs, um, 
with the two five iron Duke, these things wouldn't start in the cold. And so again, we tell the post office, Hey, we're going to install block heaters on these things, which is a little heater that goes into the coolant. Make sure you plug this in because that's going to raise the temperature of that engine, which will help with the vaporization of the fuel. Also, we're going to get all these things, new plugs in the fall. So, and it was actually wires and distributor cap and coil and all that stuff on the, uh, on the two five and make sure that the battery's in good condition and doing this would help make sure that these things are actually going to start when it's, 40 below outside so that the mail can get delivered. Otherwise we're getting calls. Uh, hey, come, come get our vehicles started. And we're out there in the lot, you know, changing plugs and batteries, trying to get these things going. But anyways, take a look uh, when the mail gets delivered to your house next time and see if you can spot one of these LLVs. Cause they're still out there rolling around and the new vehicles are supposed to be in service uh, relatively soon. So they'll start updating them, but man, are they ugly? <laughs> um, anyways, all that is uh, to say that uh, I have a lot of experience with vehicles out in the cold and the problems that it causes to them. So I want to talk about a couple case studies here with more, maybe less common issues, uh, kind of unique issues with these two vehicles. Um, the first one is a 2006 Dodge Ram. And this was actually uh, quite a few years ago when I was still working at Firestone. It was towards my end of my time with Firestone, but it was during the winter, obviously. And this was a 4.7 liter V8 single overhead cam engine. Pretty typical. You see these in the trucks and the Jeeps. So I was relatively familiar with the engine. And the issue with this was that when they went out to start this thing in the cold, the starter would stop cranking. Like it would begin to turn the engine over and then it would just stop. And so at first, when we looked at this vehicle, um, we pulled it into the shop and we were unable to duplicate the problem. Um, and there's no codes in this thing. The battery checks out good. The starter checks out good. We don't see any issues with it right now. So figure it's an intermittent problem. We end up talking to the customer and they say, well, it only started since it's been really cold out, uh, you know, below, below zero, I think was the key here. And so we decided, all right, well, let's let it sit outside and get cold um, because you could pull it outside and it wasn't going to happen. But if you let the vehicle get cold and the engine get cold, so we had to let it sit overnight outside and then attempted to start it, we were able to get it to act up. And it was exactly like the customer said, you'd go to crank it and the starter would begin to turn the engine over, but then it would just stop dead in its track. Like somebody let the key off or turn the key off and no codes in this thing or anything like that. So now, unfortunately, we kind of have to do some testing outside on this thing because we can't get it to act up in the shop. Um, you could get this thing started if you tried enough times, um, but it kept wanting to shut the starter off on you. So it made it very difficult to get it to run. And if you got it warmed up, then it stopped doing it. Okay, so obviously temperature related, but we're going to have to look at this thing outside, which made this one a little bit more difficult. This was also uh, before I had a, a scope to use and was definitely in a flat rate mindset. Uh, so keep that in mind as we go through this. But um, this issue on these Dodge Chrysler vehicles, this was the first time that I had run into it as a technician, but I have several times since. And once I get to the conclusion, we'll, I'll explain that a little bit more. But this was my first experience with this particular problem. 
So crank, crank, stop, crank, crank, stop. And that was what it would do out in the cold. What I ended up finding out through some testing was that the starter relay was releasing power to the starter solenoid when this happened. So it wasn't the starter's fault. The starter was just losing power to it and the battery was in good condition, but the starter relay was shutting off. So did the quick swap of relays, same thing. It's not a relay that's failed or failing uh, because it's doing the same thing with another one. And so I look at the diagram, who controls the starter relay? How is it wired up? And most like most Dodge vehicles of this era, the starter control side or the control side of the starter relay is going to be controlled by both the PCM and the TIPM. So that's our fuse box under the hood. Uh, TIPM controls one side, PCM controls the other. So we've got two possible sources. Now, again, I didn't have a scope here, which would have made this a lot easier. Um, and I was using a test light I'm outside. It's cold. I was not able to determine who was dropping the signal to this relay. It looked to me like both, but I wasn't a hundred percent and I had a lot of work to do because it was really cold out. So I decided in my flat rate mindset, we're going to shotgun a tip them at this thing. <laughs> that was what I decided to do. It's a high failure rate item. You know, Identifix has got a bunch of hits on it. I've got a ton of work to do. I don't want to sit out here in the cold and mess around with this thing. Let's get a tip them for this thing. That was my decision. Okay. And I was wrong. <laughs> that's, that's what you get for shotgunning parts. That's why we talk about testing so often now is because just guessing at a part, it could be, it could have been the tip them, maybe, but it wasn't in this case. And now either the shop's on the hook or, you know, the customer's on the hook, who's going to pay for this part now, you, you know, the whole scenario of why we don't just throw parts at things, right? Scanner Danner, don't be a parts changer. I was a parts changer there and it uh, was not successful for me. So I got to keep going on this thing now. And at least I guess I've eliminated the tip as a potential problem. So now I'm really looking at the PCM side of things. And so the PCM controls the other side. And so now I have the scanner connected, which again, probably should have done this in the first place, but I have the scanner connected and looking at data pads while the problem occurs. And what I ended up finding out by doing this was not anything particularly important with the data pids for cranking, but the fact that when this occurred, as soon as the starter stopped, I lost communication with the PCM. My scan tool would no longer talk to the PCM, it just dropped off. And I thought that was very strange. And it's not like the vehicle power was disabled, right? The lights on the dash are good. The battery voltage is good. Nothing like that. But I lose calm with my PCM as soon as the starter stops. And I guess that would make sense. If the PCM shutting off for some reason, of course, it's going to release control of that starter relay. And that's, that's what was happening. So now my question is, okay, do I have a PCM that's failing or is it, you know, power ground issue to the PCM, something like that. Um, what's going on here. And I did a little bit of digging and research at this point because I don't want to shotgun any more parts at this. And the PCM has to be programmed at the time. I didn't have any programming abilities. So I really want to be sure before I do this. So I do some reading on this and I end up finding out that there are some problems with these Dodge vehicles uh, that is relatively well known, at least at this point. And there was enough information out um, when I was working on this vehicle, I was able to find it that the PCM shutting down, not in my exact scenario of cold weather, but the PCM shutting down, losing communication and then coming back. And maybe I should have mentioned that after I would cycle the key, the PCM communication would come back, but it needed a key cycle in order for that to happen. 
And in the other cases, when this same thing happened, where the PCM was dropping out all of a sudden while the engine was running, what people were finding is that ignition coils were actually spiking the PCM. Now, these ignition coils are a two-wire setup, meaning that uh, one side is fed power through the ASD relay circuit, but the control side for each of the eight coils is wired directly to the PCM. And what that creates is a possibility for the flyback voltage to go directly to the PCM. Now, of course, the PCM has circuitry inside in order to protect itself, but when there is a problem coil, it can actually spike the PCM with a high voltage and cause it to basically just shut down and reset itself. And what you end up finding is not only a loss of communication in the moment, but after this happens, it's like the PCM is wiped clean. All the monitors reset after this happens. And there are no codes. If there were codes, they're deleted. And this happens every time that it gets spiked. Okay. So um, one of the solutions to this was either to use a scope, and I'll tell you how to do that in a little bit, uh, might be a more efficient way of doing this, or unplug coils one by one until the problem goes away. Okay. In my current circumstance here at Firestone, that was the method that I decided to go with. I unplugged coils one at a time and kept trying to duplicate the problem. And what I ended up finding out was number three coil, which is the second back on the driver's side. When I unplugged that coil, this thing would start every single time. Okay. Misfire, obviously, but Seven cylinders are plenty to start this engine, even when it's cold out and the starter never stopped. The PCM never lost communication and never reset. So I can be pretty confident that that's my problem, but let's figure out, is it a coil? Is it a spark plug? I actually moved the coil to number one, repeated the test, found out that number three was still my problem, right? The coil moved to one and then one's coil moved to three, but I still had to unplug the physical location of cylinder number three in order for my problem to go away. So now, okay, I'm thinking, well, this is most likely the plug in this case. And so we got it into the shop at this point and I remove the plugs. And what I ended up finding out was the plug that was in number three was actually a different brand of spark plug than the rest of them. And I think they're supposed to be champions on these uh, older Chrysler vehicles, just regular copper plugs. And I don't recall the brand. I don't know. It's like an auto light or something like that, but it was different than the rest. So somebody had put a plug in this thing and for some reason, only one plug, maybe to fix a misfire. I don't know. And the difference in the spark plug is what was causing the issue here but also the temperature was necessary in order for it to act up and it might have to do with the extra resistance of the plug or, you know, the amount that that coil had to push through in order to get that plug to work in the cold. But either way, what I did was replaced all the plugs on that engine. We let it sit outside, tried to duplicate the problem. It was fixed at that point. So we were we we're happy that we found a solution. It was definitely a weird one. Um, I have seen this on Dodge vehicles a number of times over the years since then. And since then, it's usually been coils that cause the problem. And you can do some swapping around. Um, but in some cases, a scope is the best way. And here's what I do on these to determine which coil is spiking the PCM. Um, now, this is the only time I saw it happen in a cold start scenario. Because when it hit that plug, 
that's when it disabled the starter. So sometimes it would go, depending on where the engine stopped in the firing order, it would hit, you know, two or three other cylinders before it got to number three. And that's when it killed the starter. And then other times it would be maybe, you know, three was right there and you didn't get to rotate the engine very far before it was disabled. But other vehicles that I've run into, this will happen while you're driving down the road or while you're accelerating hard. And I even had a Dodge Nitro where it happened at idle. Uh, I think I've actually described this problem a couple times in some other case studies on the podcast. But the way to go about this is to put an amp clamp around the ASD circuit. And you're going to see a lot of activity here, but you can pick out the coil amperages on that ASD circuit pretty easily because they're going to be higher than a lot of the rest of what's going on. And then you synchronize it with second channel to whatever coil you want, pick number one, and then just apply the firing order. And you can even add a crank signal on there to watch RPM. But if you're just watching that ASD relay, you can see when the engine stalls. And if you have that synchronization with your voltage, right? So I'm using like a coil wand over one of the coils. I can apply my firing order and I can figure out which coil fired at the point that the engine stalled. And then I can do that a couple times and verify, okay, it's always number five coil or it's always number three coil. Then that's your, that's your guy. And then on a V8 engine, that's going to save you some time rather than unplugging one, driving it, unplugging another one, driving it. Um, doing this, you can get it in couple times you can verify that, okay, this is my coil that's causing the PCM to spike. And again, it'll wipe the PCM. It'll reset the monitors. There might be codes in other modules for communication. I've seen it where that's the case and where it's not. Um, but it actually is relatively common on that era of Dodge vehicles that has the two wire uh, coils. So uh, anyways, thought that one was pretty interesting. Uh, is, again, it was a little while ago when I was working at Firestone, but I was still able to get through it even without a scope or a really good testing process. Um, launched a, launched a tip them at it. But anyways, the next one that I wanted to talk about was more recent. This was a 2011 Chrysler town and country with a 3.6 liter V6, that Pentastar engine. Uh, the shop said it had a hard start or a no start, particularly when it was cold. So it had to be outside and it had to be at least below 10 degrees in order for this to happen. And they had just purchased this vehicle the previous spring and they had not had an issue until it got cold. So the shop said there are no trouble code setting in this thing. Um, they found that when this thing does not start, they pull the plugs out and they're flooded. They've got a bunch of you know liquid gasoline on them. They replaced the spark plugs. And they said they checked the fuel pressure and they haven't been able to find any issues with this. But when it sits outside, it has this issue. You bring it in a warm shop, it'll start up every single time. Okay, so I'll check it out and see what's going on. Uh, of course, they have a vehicle sitting outside for me because that's what it's got to be. It's got to be cold in order to get this to happen. And it was a relatively cold day when I was checking this one out. So I got my hat and gloves on and uh, we charge a little bit extra when I have to work outside in the cold. <laughs> but anyways, I got to do what I got to do. I'm going to get this thing figured out. Hook up the scanner, look through the data pids. Everything looks normal as far as what I see. I uh, don't see anything out of whack. You know, you want to look at the coolant temperature sensor. Of course, it is cold out, but let's make sure that thing's reading accurately. And it was, uh, again, didn't see anything that was 
out of the normal range. Uh, of course, I did try to crank this and verify that, yeah, it, it sounds like it's flooded. It doesn't want to start. And you can hear a spark plug kind of pop every once in a while. And that's that, that's that clue that you have a flooded engine is maybe you've got one or two cylinders that are hitting, but it's not enough to actually get the engine to start. And the rest of the cylinders are really doing nothing because they're flooded with gas. So pretty much confirming what the shop had told me there. Now, one thing I did notice while I was sitting here, because I was outside and it was pretty quiet, anytime that I had the key in the on position, I could hear the fuel pump running. You hear it back in the tank. And I thought that was odd because I know that the fuel pump is not supposed to run in a key on engine off scenario. The pump's only supposed to run cranking and engine running, right? You need engine RPM. Um, or crank signal in order for the PCM to activate the fuel pump. So I thought that was odd and I definitely took note of it, but I didn't immediately go after it because I'm like, well, I guess at least it is running, right? I don't know why it's running all the time. I'm curious about that, but at least it is running, meaning I should have fuel pressure, right? Okay. But it did get me thinking, okay, I want to inspect the fuel system. They Now they told me fuel pressure is good and uh, this is a good shop that I go to. And I believe what they said. Um, I think I know how they checked this, but I got to see for myself. And that's the thing is like, even if you trust somebody, even if they know what they're talking about, if you're going to be the one looking at a vehicle that you know has, they're having trouble diagnosing, take what they say, you know, take that information and, and you know, write it down, you know, put it aside, say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll refer to this if I need to, but I really want to start fresh and I want to see all this stuff for myself. I've really found that with mobile to be the case. It's like, even if they said it's good, I got to see it for myself. And sometimes, you know, text prides can maybe get a little hurt by that when they see me checking the stuff that they said they already checked. It's, it's not anything negative for them, but if I want to be confident in my process, I got to see this stuff for myself. And this was a case where it was very important that I did that. Okay. So here's what I do. Um, where, what I want to do is look at the fuel pressure myself and make sure that it's good. I'm curious about the pump running all the time as well. So let's, let's hook up and see what the pressure is, but I also want to get a fuel sample. Um, because one of the other things that can happen is the E85 gas is very difficult to use to start an engine in really, really cold weather. And they do change the mixture in the wintertime around here for the gas. And this was actually a flex fuel vehicle. I had taken a look at the ethanol data pit. It was only 5% approximately, which it should be normal pump gas, just 87 octane. Um, and I, I just want to check it as well to make sure we don't have E85 in there. Let's look at the quality of the fuel and then also the pressure. Now I can do all this at once if I tee in my gauge to the line because there's no Schrader valve on this one and see what the pressure is. So I do this. Of course, key on engine off, I, the pump is running and it is building adequate pressure. It's about 60 PSI with this pump running. This is a returnless system. Okay. Um, and I get a fuel sample, looks good, smells good, add some water to it. It's only about 10% um, as far as what I see for ethanol content, so I'm not worried about that. So I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe the fuel system is okay, let's proceed on, but I want to do one more thing. I want to actually crank this thing and watch and see, does this fuel pressure do anything different while cranking? And I had looked at it uh, with the key off, the pressure did not bleed off, because that was one of my questions as well. But now I want to try cranking. I want to crank the engine and see where does the fuel pressure go. So I do this. I go inside. I'm watching my gauge that's teed in to the system. 
up at 60 PSI. As soon as I crank this engine, the gauge drops down to zero. Um, and it's almost, it's almost immediately, it's very quick. The engine makes a couple rotations, if that, and the gauge drops to zero. And then you hear this thing struggling and it actually did start at this point, And then the fuel pressure kicked back up and I'm like, huh, I wonder what's going on here. Why, why would it drop down to zero like that? Where's all the fuel pressure going? Well, as it turns out through a couple quick tests and I found my problem here with this testing the fuel pump was actually shutting off during cranking, right? And that's not, that's the opposite of what's supposed to happen here. The pump's supposed to prime with a key on, and then as soon as you crank it, the PCM and the TIPM should enable the pump to run to provide fuel pressure. And you need that fuel pressure to start the engine. Well, why was it running when the engine wasn't cranking? And why did it stop running while the engine was cranking? Well, again, in my testing here, I found out exactly what was going on with this vehicle. These tipums on these Dodge Caravans and actually a ton of Chrysler tipums, it's a well-known problem that the fuel pump relays fail in these things. They're internal to the tipum. So you can either uh, wire up a bypass relay that Chrysler actually sells a kit for, or you can make your own. It's pretty easy to do. I've done several of those. Or if you're really ambitious, you can take apart the tipum, desolder the failed relay and solder a new one on uh, whichever way you want to fix it. Or I guess you could get a new tipum, but Dodge's fix is to wire up an external relay for the fuel pump. Okay. So this particular vehicle had experienced the problem somewhere along the line that the tipum fuel pump relay internal had failed. Now here's where whoever was working on it went wrong. Instead of wiring up a relay, all they did was jump power from one fuse to another within the fuse box. And what this did was this particular circuit that they were robbing power from was only powered up while the key was in the on position or the run position. This particular circuit did not have power during the crank position. And for that circuit, I didn't even bother checking what it was for that circuit. That's normal. That's normal. That's not supposed to have power during cranking for whatever that circuit powered, but our fuel pump does need power during cranking. And on this van, what would happen again, as, as long as the key was on, it was getting powered, it was running. But as soon as you went to crank the engine, then it lost power. The pump stopped pumping and the injectors are firing, dropping the pressure in the line, but you have no supply coming back up, which is effectively going to drop that fuel pressure. We're not going to atomize the fuel correctly. And the longer you crank, you basically are adding no fuel at that point. And it would start in warmer weather, right? The, the fuel pressure that had been built up just from key, like turning the key on, was enough to start it in warm weather. But as soon as it got cold and we drop that pressure down, as soon as we crank it, that was enough to keep this thing from starting in the cold weather. Okay. Now I did mention that it did start for me when I had my gauge assembly on there. And I was questioning, well, why did it start now and not other times? I think I'm, I'm speculating a little bit here, but I think my gauge assembly with the T in it and the gauge and the adapter provided enough volume up near the rail that it was able to start. And I'm just kind of guessing there, but it started and ran 
<laughs> when I had my assembly connected and it wouldn't do it when I took it off. But either way, I told the shop, here's what you do. Wire up the relay correctly like it's supposed to be. And then the pump will not run anytime the key is on. It will only run during cranking and engine running the way that it's supposed to, the way that the fuel pump is designed to operate. And so why didn't they find this? Why didn't they see that there was no fuel pressure? Number one, I think they checked it just key on. And I also don't think that they teed into the line. I think they were just doing a deadhead uh, pressure check with a gauge. Um, But either way, and, and for me too, I had to check it while it was cranking to see that pressure drop down. And that was it. Okay, we're, that's it. That's where our problem is. So those are my two case studies for cold weather vehicles. And that's all I've got for you today. I want to thank everybody again for reaching out to me. Um, I've had a ton of people recently. Um, it, it's so cool to get to meet everybody else that's out there. And I love hearing about you know your thoughts on the podcast. Uh, your ideas for episodes, guests, you want to be a guest, whatever it is, hit me up on Facebook. Um, I'll get back to you pretty quickly there. So thanks again. And let's all get out there and start fixing the world one car at a time.